0: My text for the sermon this Lord's Day is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Lord willing, we will conclude our series this Lord's Day on the matter of divorce and remarriage. Historical testimony is not an infallible rule of faith and practice. This is the view of the Romish Church with regard to church tradition, that it is of equal authority with the word of God within the church. Only the Holy Scriptures hold that supreme place of authority in matters of faith and practice. Thus, when evaluating the statements of church councils and church fathers, their words must always be measured according to the rule of God's Holy Word. When churches and teachers of the past express the teaching of the Bible, we should joyfully walk in their paths. But when they stray from the doctrine, worship, government, and discipline that is found in the Scriptures, that was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Apostles, we must not be led astray by the words of man, no matter how gifted, no matter how honored they may be in the history of the church. In evaluating historical testimony, it may be observed that remarriage after a lawful divorce was not permitted by many of the church leaders in the 2nd to the 5th centuries AD For example Justin Martyr Clement of Alexandria Origen and others taught that a lawful do- divorce did not issue in remarriage there was no opportunity for another marriage after a lawful divorce Although this is true as to what these particular church fathers taught it should also be noted that there were those who believed that remarriage was permitted after a lawful divorce. For example, Origen speaks of, quote, leaders of the church, end of quote, at his time who held the view that remarriage was permitted after a lawful divorce. Other church fathers like Lactantius and Hilary likewise taught the same view. Not only is it significant, therefore, that there were opposing views on the subject represented amongst the early church fathers, but also that many of the early church fathers who did not tolerate remarriage after a lawful divorce looked upon celibacy as a more holy estate than marriage and believed that priests after consecration could not marry at all which subsequently led to men and women renouncing their wives and their husbands in order to assume some order or calling within the church. Needless to say, an orthodox view of marriage did not generally prevail during this period from the 2nd sec- to the 5th centuries. And that must be kept in view as one considers the view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage maintained by many of the early church fathers. It was, in fact, the Romish church that continued the unbiblical views of marriage embraced by many of the early church fathers. However, at the time of the Reformation, the Scripture was given its rightful place, of supreme authority in all such controversies and the devaluation of marriage was replaced with the exaltation of marriage. And along with that exaltation of marriage, the biblical right to remarry after a lawful divorce. This Lord's Day, we shall consider the following main points. A biblical objection resolved. And secondly, a practical question answered. A biblical objection resolved. From our text in Ephesians five, thirty-one and 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Here it is objected that since our earthly marriage pictures the marriage of Christ to his church, how can there be a lawful divorce which dissolves the earthly marriage and allows a lawful remarriage since no lawful divorce or remarriage is possible in our heavenly marriage to Christ. Well, it must be acknowledged that our earthly marriage and our marriage to Christ in the covenant of grace do indeed bear certain similarities which are enumerated in Ephesians 5, Verses 22 through 33. The similarities that are enumerated there between our heavenly marriage to Christ and an earthly marriage of husband and wife include the following. Number one, just as Christ is head of the church, so is an earthly husband the head of his wife. Secondly, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, So, an earthly husband is called to self-sacrificially love his wife and to be willing to lay down his life for his wife. Third, just as Christ provides all that his church needs, so in a similar manner, an earthly husband is to provide materially and spiritually that which is proper for the wife. And then as we look at the duties, and the roles of, of the church with regard to Christ and of the earthly wife with regard to her earthly husband, we note this. Just as the church is called to submit to the headship of Christ, so earthly wives are to submit themselves to their husbands in the Lord. <coughs> But having considered the similarities that are found between earthly marriages and our heavenly marriage here in Ephesians 5, it must also be noted that there, are also, there exists notable differences between our marriage to Christ and our earthly marriages. Although the differences between the earthly marriage and the heavenly marriage are not specifically pressed in Ephesians chapter 5, for that wasn't the purpose of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't his purpose to give all of the differences between those marriages. Nevertheless, from the rest of Scripture, we certainly would be able to identify many differences between these marriages. For instance, first Christ is a perfect husband, being fully God and fully man in one person, whereas earthly husbands are imperfect, sinful men. Secondly, our heavenly marriage to Christ can never be dissolved by physical death, whereas earthly marriages can be dissolved by physical death. Thirdly, our heavenly marriage to Christ is founded upon an eternal covenant, having begun in the covenant of redemption from all eternity and realized in the covenant of grace in time, whereas earthly marriages are founded upon a temporal civil covenant between two human beings. And fourthly, just as the Scripture reveals differences such as those just mentioned, so the Scripture also reveals a difference between our heavenly marriage to Christ and our earthly marriage in that earthly marriages can be dissolved by divorce and a lawful remarriage permitted. And again, I simply cite the texts because we have addressed them many times in past sermons. Deuteronomy twenty-four verses one through four, Matthew nineteen nine First Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28. But dear ones, the heavenly marriage to Christ can never be dissolved by divorce, nor a new marriage lawfully contracted with any other husband than Christ. For the Lord Jesus Christ assures us in his word in John chapter 6, Verses 37-39. through All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. <clears throat> Dear ones, the Roman church has made marriage in fact one of its seven sacraments. Five of those sacraments find no place at all as sacraments in scripture the other two being greatly perverted, even corrupted by Rome. And they have based this upon a false interpretation of this verse in Ephesians 5.31, that marriage is a sacrament. In the Greek language, which is the original language of the New Testament, the word mystery that you find in Ephesians 5.31, this is a great mystery. The word mystery or in Greek, musterion, is used. Whereas in the Latin Vulgate, which is the authoritative version of the Bible for the Church of Rome, the Latin word sacramentum is used, which means sacrament. Thus, Rome teaches that marriage actually conveys grace to the husband and wife. By the blessing of the priest, when a couple is married, the spouses are made holy so that their natural affection is transformed into a spiritual affection, and thus they become fit, and their marriage becomes a fit symbol of the union of Christ and His church. And because marriage is a sacrament, of the church, according to Rome. It cannot, again, according to Rome, it cannot be lawfully dissolved. And this, therefore, disallows a remarriage. Now, although Protestants would not maintain that marriage is a sacrament which signifies and seals Christ and His redemption, nevertheless, Some Protestants have fallen into a Romish-like error in so likening our earthly marriages to our heavenly marriage so that our earthly marriage cannot be dissolved and no remarriage contracted after a lawful divorce. Why? Because earthly marriages are a mystery in portraying the relationship of Christ to his church in the covenant of grace and i would offer and submit to you that this is a complete misreading and misunderstanding of ephesians 5:32 by such protestants and by the roman church you see it's essential to observe in ephesians 5:32 that it does not teach that earthly marriage itself is a mystery but rather that the spiritual union between Christ and the church is a mystery. And the reason that we know that that's the case, because immediately after Paul says, for this is a great mystery, he tells us, concerning what? What does this mystery have to do with? I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the mystery. Not the earthly marriage but Christ and the church. You see a mystery according to the New Testament definition is a truth that can only be known by divine revelation. For example in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 4 through 6, Paul says that it's a mystery that God has called the Gentiles to be a part of the same body with Israel. And that's again uh, pictured as a mystery in Romans 11:25 when Paul says that he tells he would have them not be ignorant about the mystery as to what's happened to uh, Israel that blindness has come upon her in part but God will yet restore her that's a mystery known by divine revelation alone and in 1 Corinthians 15:51 he gives us another mystery that not all will sleep or die, but that there will be some who are living at the time of Christ's coming. That's a mystery that is given by divine revelation alone. And so, it is a mystery that the Lord is united to His church by the Spirit. This mystical, spiritual union with the church is a mystery. Revealed in his word. The words of Calvin, I believe, accurately summarize the teaching of Paul at this point, taken from his commentary on this text, when he says, We see then the hammer and anvil with which they, that is the papists, fabricated this sacrament of marriage. But they have given another proof of their indolence, or laziness, and not attending to the correction which is immediately added, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He, that is Paul, intended to give express warning that no man should understand him as speaking of marriage. The great mystery is that Christ breathes into the church his own life and power. But who would discover here anything like a sacrament? This blunder arose from the grossest ignorance. Dear ones, if the marriage covenant, as to its essential nature, is founded upon the covenant of grace, or is a covenant which a couple makes together, the couple makes this covenant with directly with God, then, as we've noted before, All the marriages of unbelievers are unlawful, adulterous relationships. For again, unbelievers do not have the capacity to covenant with the living God through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, nor do they have the desire to do so. Finally, concerning this text, We thus see that Ephesians 5.32 does not so liken earthly marriages to our union with Christ in the covenant of grace that the dissolution of a marriage by a lawful divorce and a subsequent remarriage are forbidden. For earthly marriages are not founded upon the covenant of grace, but rather are founded upon a civil covenant instituted, regulated, and witnessed by God. We come to the second main point. A practical question answered. And I have saved this question to the last sermon because, as you will see, it is probably that which will Uh, arouse within us uh, the most uh, controversy and even as we look at the question we see that there are reformed people who held that after a lawful divorce remarriage was granted to the innocent party however this question has to do with the guilty party And it is asked, is the husband or wife who is guilty of adultery permitted to remarry after a lawful divorce? This is a difficult question and one that is potentially emotionally charged. And so I exhort us all, let us proceed with caution, seeking God's grace to guide us in wisdom and in knowledge of the truth. Let us first then examine the biblical evidence and then we will consider the historical testimony. First of all, adultery and willful desertion are indeed heinous sins, yea, crimes as well, committed against one with whom a husband or wife is one flesh and bound by covenant Till death us do part. Since God instituted marriage, since God regulates marriage by his word, and since God bears witness to the covenant made in marriage, adultery and willful desertion are likewise sins committed against the Lord our God. The Lord finds adultery such an aggravated sin and crime that He specifically authorized the civil penalty of death for it. In Deuteronomy 22.22. Although adultery is not the unpardonable sin, Christ will save and Christ will forgive all adulterers who come to Him and seek His forgiveness. Even as the Lord forgave David in Psalm 51, the Lord's grace and mercy extends to all adulterers, to all those who willfully desert. God will forgive. Nevertheless, forgiveness before the Lord does not necessarily exempt one from civil punishment that is due his or her crime. For example, the thief on the cross still suffered the penalty of his crime, though he was forgiven and assured by Christ, today thou wilt be with me in paradise. So if willful adulterers were to be lawfully executed according to God's law, how could a divorce have ever been introduced as a civil punishment by God in the first place? First, as we noted in an earlier sermon, there seem to be certain cases even during biblical times in which one, was, one who was guilty of adultery may not be put to death. <clears throat> In Numbers chapter 5, verse 27, a husband suspicious of his wife takes her through a particular ordeal established by God whereby she appears before the priest, she takes an oath upon herself, offers off, uh, sacrifices, and in that oath she confesses that she has not committed adultery, Bitter water is given to her. And if she is indeed guilty of having committed adultery, her belly swells and her thigh rots. If she is indeed innocent, the Lord promises blessing upon her, many children, prosperity with regard to her family. But, Interestingly enough, if she is found guilty and her belly swells and her thigh rots, nothing is said with regard to her being put to death. She shall be accounted a curse amongst the people. Presumably, then, that could be a case for divorce. According to Deuteronomy chapter 24, perhaps that's what is in view, when, the Lord says, if a man finds some uncleanness in his wife. We find, furthermore that in Matthew 1:19, that Joseph being a righteous man, when he found that Mary was with child, was about to put her away privately, secretly. That is, to divorce her secretly. It would appear, as we look at that particular situation, that perhaps one of the reasons why one could divorce and put one away privately or secretly and the death penalty not be executed is in a case where there were no witnesses to the actual sin certainly in this case i mean the evidence of mary being pregnant was witnessed by all but there were no witnesses to that to stand up against her and say i saw her commit adultery or some t- some type of evidence that would be able to be used uh, against her you know, by way of eyewitnesses. Finally, in John 8.7, John 8.7, the Lord tells those who bring to her a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. The Lord says, you who are without sin cast the first stone. These Pharisees place another test before the Lord. It is a test and a very obvious test in that they bring the woman, they do not bring the man who is also obviously guilty of adultery as well. They bring the woman alone, which would appear to be a case of entrapment. And furthermore, the witnesses who... Bring the charges against this woman, having been guilty of having set her up, having entrapped her. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, which we read earlier, could not come as witnesses against her. They were not faithful witnesses. They had been guilty of the same sin, they were implicated by the same sin witnesses were to cast the first stone and then the rest of the people were to follow. But these witnesses had disqualified themselves. So, again, this woman, according to the law, Jesus did not did not disannul the law with regard to adultery and capital punishment as it pertains to adultery. Rather, he appealed to the law and saying that this woman has no witnesses. She, he, the Lord says, where are thine accusers? They're gone. They could not stand and accuse because they were implicated themselves. And so this would give us some indication as to even during biblical times, how divorce might arise even in cases of adultery. But I would also offer that divorce became a necessary civil penalty in a nation where magistrates did not execute capital punishment against those guilty of willful adultery, which appears to be the reason why Christ institutes this legislation concerning adultery in Matthew five thirty two and Matthew nine verse nineteen. I'm sorry. Matthew nineteen verse nine. It appears that this was the case even during the time of Christ, that adultery was not punished. Or if it was punished, it was not consistently punished. And so there were adulterers who were living. What was to happen? What was to be done with those who were guilty of adultery? The Lord legislates concerning that and brings forth the civil sanction of divorce. And certainly, since there was no civil punishment specifically stated in the law of God for willful desertion, the Lord instituted divorce through the Apostle Paul for that cause as well. In 1 Corinthians 7.15. Thus, these are the reasons why the question as to what the guilty party may do, whether the guilty party may remarry, the reason why that question even arises has to do with the issue that adult, all adulterers were not necessarily put to death. Yes, the willful adulterer deserves to be put to death. But what should be done if such is not the case? The innocent party may lawfully divorce the one guilty of adultery. That very clearly the Scripture teaches. And the innocent party may lawfully remarry. But... Does God necessarily require the guilty party to remain unmarried the rest of his or her life? I ask you, because we get into a rather technical part of the sermon at this point, to pay close attention to what is being said. Let us consider the words of the Lord... In Matthew nineteen verse nine. And I would encourage you, because I think it will be a little more technical, if you had your Bibles opened, and if you were able to follow the text, it probably will be more easily understood. Matthew nineteen nine. Where Jesus says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. We have noted in an earlier sermon on this text that Christ states that the husband who puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery, except it be for fornication on the part of his wife, And then he does not commit adultery if he remarries. That speaks to the innocent party, being able to remarry. However, what about the wife who was put away for her fornication? Matthew 19.9 continues. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. That is, the man that marries her that is divorced also commits adultery. Now, the question is this. Does the clause, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery, does that clause stand all by itself, or is it likewise qualified by the exception, except it be for fornication? If it stands all by itself, then there is no exception stated, and the man who marries the woman who is divorced for fornication commits adultery under any and all circumstances. However, if the exception, except it be for fornication, also qualifies the second part of this verse then the man who marries the woman guilty of fornication does not commit adultery. And I submit to you that the same exception must apply in this clause, in the second part of the verse, as it applies in the previous clause, in the first part of the verse. Why, and I'm going to try and uh, unravel that a little bit at this time, why would this man, in the latter part of the verse, be guilty of committing adultery when he marries this woman? Why would he be guilty of adultery? <clears throat> Does not the mention of adultery infer that she still is lawfully married to another man? Does it not infer that she has not been lawfully divorced from her husband? And therefore, a man who marries her is marrying, a, uh, marrying one who is married yet? He commits adultery by marrying this woman because the previous marriage was never lawfully dissolved. Having never been lawfully dissolved, she is yet, as we said, married, and whoever marries her commits adultery, enters into an adulterous relationship. Thus, Christ teaches as the general rule of divorce and remarriage that if a man puts away his wife for unlawful reasons and marries another, he commits adultery. And if subsequently another man marries the wife who is unlawfully divorced, he also commits adultery. Why do both of these men commit adultery? Because the first marriage in view has not been lawfully dissolved. He divorced his wife for unlawful and frivolous reasons, not for a lawful cause. But, I ask, what happens when the first marriage is lawfully dissolved by divorce for the cause of fornication on the part of the wife? Well, in that case, the first husband does not commit adultery if he remarries. And neither does the second husband commit adultery if he marries her who was put away for fornication. It is qualified by that exception clause. You cannot be guilty of committing adultery against one who is no longer your lawful husband or your lawful wife. You cannot commit adultery if they're no longer your spouse. Listen to Calvin in his commentary on this text as he makes clear that the exception clause does indeed qualify the second part of the verse as it does the first part of the verse. Calvin says, This clause, that is, and whoso marrieth her that is put away doth commit adultery, has been very ill-explained by many commentators, for they have thought that generally and without exception, celibacy is enjoined in all cases when a divorce has taken place. And therefore, if a husband should put away an adulteress, both would be laid under the necessity of remaining unmarried. For though Christ condemns as an an adulterer the man who shall marry a wife that has been divorced, notice this clause, this is undoubtedly restricted to unlawful and frivolous divorces. In like manner, Paul enjoins those who have been so dismissed to remain unmarried or to be reconciled to their husbands, 1 Corinthians 7.11. That is, because quarrels and differences do not dissolve a marriage. He commits adultery if he marries her who has been unlawfully divorced. But with the qualification, he does not commit adultery with her if she has been lawfully divorced. Now let us consider what Christ says then in Matthew 5.32. Matthew 5.32. There we find these words of the Lord. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. (coughs) Whereas Matthew 19.9 does not explicitly address the woman who remarries, As to her guilt, it says that the man who marries her commits adultery. Here in Matthew 5.32, the case of the woman is considered by Christ. The Lord teaches, again, as the general rule of divorce and remarriage, that if a husband divorces his wife for any unlawful or frivolous reason, he causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries her that is, divorce for an unlawful reason, for a frivolous reason, also commits adultery. Now, how does he cause her to commit adultery? In that he has not divorced her for a lawful cause, and therefore, when she enters into a another marriage it is an unlawful marriage because the first one was not lawfully dissolved he therefore causes her to commit adultery through his actions and putting her away for an unlawful reason he is therefore a party to her adultery if she remarries and as the scripture goes on to say and the man who marries her while being unlawfully divorced, also commits adultery with her. But what if the divorce occurs for the lawful reason stated in the text, for the cause of fornication on the part of the wife? Then the man does not cause her to commit adultery. If, it is for that cause, then the conclusion changes. He does not cause her to commit adultery. And likewise, the man who marries her does not commit adultery. Why doesn't she commit adultery if she remarries? Because she is no longer bound lawfully bound to the former husband the marriage has been lawfully dissolved for lawful reasons <clears throat> the next text in regard to the guilty party to consider is deuteronomy 24:14 where we find there that the guilty party the woman the man finds some uncleanness in her the guilty party is divorced lawfully divorced and is remarried and that second marriage is a lawful marriage. For in the second marriage, the man is called her husband. She is called his wife. The first husband is called the former husband. You see, if there was no lawful divorce in view in Deuteronomy 24... Verses 1 through 4, then the second marriage would have been an, an, an adulterous relationship. But such is not the case. The guilty party there is permitted to remarry. I submit to you that in no passage concerning divorce or remarriage that I have found in the Scripture is the guilty party. Forbidden from remarrying after a lawful divorce. I can find nothing that essentially forbids the guilty party from remarrying after a lawful divorce. But to the contrary, the guilty party is either explicitly allowed to remarry, as in Deuteronomy 24, or it is necessarily inferred that the guilty party is permitted to remarry after a lawful divorce as in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. Well, let us briefly consider the historical testimony from certain sources. First, I would have you note that the first book of discipline of the Church of Scotland, written in 1560 in the ninth head, states the following. Marriage contracted may not be dissolved at man's pleasure, as our Master Christ Jesus does witness, unless adultery is committed, which being sufficiently proven in presence of the civil magistrate, the innocent, if they so require, ought to be pronounced free and the offender ought to suffer the death as God has commanded. If the civil sword foolishly spares the life of the offender, yet the church may not be negligent in their office, which is to excommunicate the wicked, and to repute them as dead members, and to pronounce the innocent party to be at freedom, be they never so honorable before the world. If the life is spared as it ought not to be to the offenders, and if the fruits of repentance of long time appear in them, and if they earnestly desire to be reconciled with the church, we judge that they may be received to participation of the sacraments and of the other benefits of the church. For we would not that the church should hold those excommunicated whom God absolved. That is the penitent. If any demand whether that the offender after reconciliation with the church may not marry again, we answer that if they cannot live continent, and if the necessity is such as that they fear further offense of God, We cannot forbid them to use the remedy ordained of God. If the party offended may be reconciled to the offender, then we judge that in no wise shall it be lawful to the offender to marry any other, except the party that before has been offended. And the solemnization of the latter marriage must be in the open face of the church, like as the former but without proclamation of bans. Note that the book of discipline gives a proper order that was to be used in reclaiming the guilty party before granting to them permission to remarry. They did not absolutely forbid remarriage. They did not say that in the nature of the case, One who is the guilty party cannot remarry. But they gave a particular order that ought to be followed. Very wise order to be followed. Repentance, forgiveness, attempts to be reconciled if possible with the former wife or the former husband, a period of faithfulness, and an expressed need to remarry to prevent further uncleanness. It should be noted that the Church of Scotland, even subsequent to the first book of discipline, did in fact wrestle with this issue. And one can see in the very acts of the General Assembly that they found this to be such a difficult issue that they actually postponed, at various times, decisions in various cases. Perhaps, this is at least a possibility, perhaps hoping that the civil magistrate would enforce the the civil punishment required and thus remove the unpleasant matter from their laps altogether. But, The point I would make is, this is not an easy decision. This is not an easy solution, easily resolved. It is difficult. As I said, it is emotionally charged as well. The second piece of historical testimony... In one of Calvin's letters, he answers questions put to him concerning divorce and remarriage, and in particular, he responds to the question concerning the guilty party in a divorce. This is found in Calvin's Ecclesiastical Advice, page 122. There he writes, Adultery has not been punished as severely as it should have been. And the lives of those who violate the marriage bond have been spared. It would be harsh, therefore, to prohibit a man from marrying during his whole lifetime if his wife has divorced him for adultery or to prohibit a woman who has been repudiated by her husband, especially if they have difficulty with being sexually continent. Nevertheless, it does not seem sensible in judging the the party who was at fault, to allow that person to fly off immediately to another marriage. The freedom to remarry should be put off for a time, whether for a definite period or until the innocent party has remarried. Again, not an absolute prohibition given to the guilty party that you may never remarry, but an orderly Restitution and restoration is laid out. As we consider, thirdly, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 24, section 5, we know that it says nothing at all about the guilty party remarrying completely silent about the guilty party at all, but mentions only the right of the innocent party to remarry. It says, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. one might ask the question, why is nothing said about the guilty party? And I would submit to you, I've not been able to locate specific, explicit information to this effect, but I would submit to you a possible, hopefully plausible explanation to that. I believe they left the question open. They did not absolutely prohibit or forbid the guilty party to remarry, but I believe they left the question open because, in fact, there were differences amongst them with regard to that particular issue. For the sake of uniformity, they did not address that particular question, though, again, in the standards of the Church of Scotland, In Geneva, we find as well more explicit statements to that effect. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is nothing explicitly stated. I would also note that the first book of discipline was still an official subordinate standard of the Church of Scotland when the Westminster Confession of Faith was adopted. And that particular section dealing with the guilty party was not eliminated or amended in the first book of discipline and so with regard to that particular matter of the guilty party all we can say is that this confession of faith does not rule on the matter it doesn't specifically affirm it nor does it specifically prohibit it. It doesn't rule on that particular issue. One final point. In this discussion of whether the guilty party may remarry after a lawful divorce, it is important to state that the guilty party whether one is guilty of adultery or guilty of, a, of desertion, the guilty party has no lawful grounds to divorce the innocent party. This is extremely important to recognize. The lawful grounds to divorce lawfully it rests solely upon the innocent party to sue out a divorce against the guilty party and not vice versa. In other words, although adultery and desertion are lawful grounds for a divorce, They are only lawful grounds for a divorce as long as the innocent party pursues or consents to the divorce. If the innocent party does not consent to the divorce, even when the guilty party has committed adultery, there is no lawful divorce and the guilty party cannot remarry. In all the cases presented in the word of God, it is the innocent party that divorces the guilty party and not vice versa. The scripture gives no lawful grounds for a guilty party to dissolve a marriage without the consent of the innocent party. Thus if the guilty party divorces the innocent party entirely on his or her own whim and without the consent of the innocent party there is no dissolution to the marriage and the guilty party enters into an adulterous relationship if he or she remarries I said it was the last point and I'm notorious for uh, making these so called last points and continuing with one more statement but I uh, anticipated myself I guess to some degree let me simply mention this it's It's asked in regard to to the guilty party if he or she is permitted to remarry under any circumstance. In other words, if there is a lawful divorce and if the, the guilty party is permitted to remarry, it does not seem fair that he or she should escape any consequences or punishment for his or her sin. Well, I would simply submit to you, remember that even if the civil magistrate does not execute the proper punishment required in a civil case, nevertheless, willful, obstinate adulterers will not escape God's righteous judgment. Listen to question 56 of the Shorter Catechism. The question asks, what is the reason annexed to the third commandment? The answer. The reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape His righteous judgment. The Lord is absolutely clear in regard to this matter in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. There will be many consequences, you can be assured, of those who commit, uh, uh, who commit adultery. And when there is a divorce that occurs as a result of that, even if, the guilty party is allowed to remarry, if there isn't repentance, if there is not reconciliation sought, if there is not all of those steps of good order taken, you can be assured and even with those steps the the consequences are not necessarily removed from those who commit adultery. They may be And God will forgive all of those who seek his forgiveness with sincerity. God will forgive them when they come to Christ. But not necessarily all the consequences will be forgiven. And especially if they continue in their willful sin, there will be God's righteous judgment to follow. In such cases where civil justice is not properly meted out, Dear ones, we must leave justice with the Lord and learn to be silent and know that He is God. That He will reckon with those who obstinately and willfully violate His law and His commandments. But in so doing, dear ones, we must reflect When we consider this particular fact, that it appears that the guilty party is permitted to remarry in a lawful divorce, we must look to ourselves as well. We must reflect upon the Lord's loving kindness and long-suffering and patience with us. God has been abundantly patient as we look throughout our lives, as we consider the things that we have done and committed by way of sin against Him and against our neighbor. God has forgiven us. And in a great degree, when we come to Christ, we see even many of the consequences mitigated, tempered by His grace and His love, His forbearance, This, in recognizing that, yes, it appears that the scripture allows for a guilty party to be remarried in the event of a lawful divorce. This, I would submit to you, should cause us not to become resentful and bitter, rather to leave justice with God and rather to cast ourselves upon his mercy and upon his grace for his mercy extends to us just as it extends to that adulterer. Remember the words of David who was an adulterer. Remember the words of David in Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me blot out all my transgressions. Let us rather appeal. Rather than become angry, vengeful, resentful, let us rather fall upon the mercy of God and plead even for the adulterer's forgiveness that they would turn to Christ and repent of their sin. And then when they do, let us welcome them with open arms into the body of Christ, the church of Christ. Let us prescribe for them as well that same order that we have read about in the book of discipline and Calvin speaks of. Let us welcome them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Even as Paul said, he was the chief of sinners and receive mercy as an example to all that would follow Him, let us reach out to those as well who evidence that repentance. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that Thou would give to us Thy grace even now as we consider These many truths that have been propounded this day from thy word. Let us, Lord, carefully consider and, like Bereans, go to the scriptures to see whether these things be so. Let us, Lord, examine our own hearts. Let us, Father, see that, yes, adultery is a very heinous sin by sight, worthy of death. But yet, let us, Father, also see in Thy providence adultery is not presently punished as it deserves. And let us, Father, because of this, reach out to those who are guilty of such sins with the love, the grace, and the mercy of Christ calling them to come to Christ, calling them to embrace Christ. We pray, Father, that Thou would give to us that Spirit, and that thou would encourage, Father, the hearts of thy people this day. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7:31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to His commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves